Oh my gosh, this is such a great episode. Maria Leonard Olson is my guest today, and she is so interesting and has so much insight on a life that has been full of challenges and obstacles that she's overcome, including getting sober. And she has really had such an adventurous life since she turned 50. She's now 60. And she decided when she turned 50 to do 50 new things. And then she wrote a book about it. So talk about changing your life from being an alcoholic to living life to your fullest and being passionate about what you do and excited about what you do. So, so good. And I didn't even know. I wanted to interview her about her book and the 50 new things and learn about the 50 new things so I could get some ideas and give you ideas for what new things we could do. I didn't even realize that she was a recovering or a recovered, a sober person who had a very big problem uh, with alcohol. And so it was it was so great. And she has really transformed herself, her life and her contribution to the world. And it's lovely to see. Uh, very inspiring. So uh, here is the episode with Maria. Hi, I'm Lori Wright, also known as Not Your Average Grandma. I created this podcast as a place for women in their second half of life to go to to receive inspiration. If you are at a place where you believe your best days are behind you, it is my hope one of these episodes will spark you to think differently and lead you to a new belief that your second half may actually be your best half. I want you to stop seeing your age as a limitation and start seeing it as your superpower. You have years of experience and value that the younger you never had. So it's time to lean into that and use it to fuel your future. No more letting age or circumstances hold you back from the pursuit of a more fulfilling and fun life. The happier we are, the better the world will be. So instead of settling for what you don't want, how about going after what you do want? Listen in and let something you hear prompt you to take the first step in making the rest your best. Welcome to another episode of Living Your Spark Second Half. And today I have with me Maria Leonard Olson. And we were just chatting because we live fairly close to each other. And she, we were comparing stories. We uh, live and lived and grew up in the same area. I'm now two hours away, but it's a great area. I love the DC area. And I, I wanted to have Maria on because I thought she could inspire you to do something new in your life because she decided when she turned 50 that she wanted to do 50 new things. So I am so excited. I did not ask her any questions before I hit record because I wanted to be surprised along with you to see what some of these 50 things are. And But I did ask her if she had a timeline and she said yes to do it all in a year. But Maria, so first of all, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah. So I wanted to ask first, when I saw your notes that you sent me, you said you completely blew up your life when you were 49. And so I kind of completely blew up mine when I was 47. So I'm just curious, what does that mean that you completely blew it up? Oh, for me, that means I drank my way out of a 25-year marriage. I had a big alcohol problem 
And I had been a successful lawyer. I was a political appointee in the Clinton administration, the Justice Department. I'd worked at one of the biggest firms in DC and I willingly gave up my career to be an at-home mom. And I feel really lucky that I had that time with my children. But when they reached adolescence and started pushing me away, I did not handle it well. And I sought refuge in the bottle, trying to numb out every day. So I uh, had a big drinking problem. And my then husband started finding the bottles all over the place and um, gave me an ultimatum. I was just reminded of that movie because that was what the husband did with Andy Garcia and Meg Ryan. Yes, 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 yes. Uh Yeah. Yeah. So I did go to rehab and I am now 11 years sober and went to, uh, I go to a lot of AA meetings and Al-Anon meetings, but so I got sober. I got divorced. I became an empty nester. My kids went off to college and boarding school because our home life was falling apart for one big reason. And um, I was living alone for the first time in my life. And I felt very much adrift, rudderless. And so I was turning 50 and my previous milestone birthdays had been really big affairs. And people kept asking me, what are you going to do for your 50th? And I wanted to hide, but instead I decided to try 50 new things to determine how I wanted to live the next chapter of my life. Mm. And I didn't intend to write a book, but people kept asking me for my list. And so I knew it resonated with people. So I ended up writing this book and I found an agent quickly, got published by a good publishing house, got great reviews, including editorial reviews. So it took off. How long did it take you to do? Well, first of all, I guess you spent your 50th year doing all those things. And then did you start writing it as you were doing those things? I Um, did. I keep a journal and I started after I got an agent and a publishing contract, I started writing what I learned from each experience and change. And so, yeah, it took the publishing process, at least with traditional publishing takes, I'd say at minimum a year to go through all the edits, the selecting a book cover, the marketing, the placement. So yeah, it took another year uh, plus to get it to market. And then I started a book tour and I did a TEDx talk that summarizes what I learned in this endeavor. The TEDx talk was at City University of New York, and it's called Turning Life's Challenges into a Force for Good, because this book has helped thousands of people break through difficulties in their lives, up-level their lives. And I think in our culture, the milestone birthdays hold a lot of significance for people. And people as they enter midlife are less likely to want to have a big blowout party. So this, this exercise really resonated with people, not only in midlife, because my daughter's friends in her, their twenties also said it helped them during, I mean, some people call it the, um, what is it called when you're 21 and your quarter life crisis, Mm. when people don't really know what they want to do. And we've been sold this false bill of goods where we think we're supposed to know at young adulthood, what we want to do with the rest of our lives, where that's a fiction. I mean, most people change course during their 
college majors and during their careers. And I am very much an advocate for discovering many passions and allowing yourself the flexibility to try new threads when things resonate with you. So I don't think, I no longer think that there's a soul, one soulmate for each person in the world. I think there can be many soulmates. I also believe that if you choose one linear path, you're likely foreclosing many beautiful opportunities. Mm, I love that. Yes. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, so I did these 50 new things and the editor wanted me to group them into categories, which I did. So the categories include lifestyle changes, thrill-seeking ventures, travel, learning and teaching, spiritual endeavors. Can you touch on a couple that were the most profound? Mm, yes. Uh, you know, and I'd love for you to share a couple and they might be the same, but a couple that you were really scared to do mm. and you pushed through that because I'm all into pushing through your fear and trying. It's outside sure. your comfort zone, which I'm sure a lot of those things were for you. Yes, they were indeed. So the most dramatic thing that I did is I sold most of my belongings, put the rest in storage or donated them. And then I moved to Nepal, high in the Himalayas eight hours from walk from the closest road. And what that became, I volunteered at a school and I had a Nepali friend who put me in touch with friends of friends who got me to the poorest region in Nepal. And what that became for me was an exercise in cultivating gratitude because the, the children that I worked with had very little. They didn't even know if they would eat that day. They had no running water, no electricity. Everything had to be walked hours up this mountain. So no medical care. Many of them lacked shoes and there was snow on the ground. I was put up with a family that gave me their bed of honor, which was a table with blankets on top of it. They don't they don't have the things that we take for granted. So when I came back from that, it really reset my life because I no longer take for granted the fact that I have access to clean water and medical care just because I happen to live in this country. There is an enormous safety net for Americans. I and tell no me, longer, how long did you live in Nepal? Two oh. months. Okay. And I didn't, I no longer take for granted small luxuries like paper towels and napkins. Those don't exist in the Himalayas. Uh, I mean, for many reasons, but so when I came back from that exercise, I was fundamentally changed as a person. And the first time I went to a restaurant in the U.S., I was in the bathroom and I had been using an outhouse for these two months. And I looked around and I said out loud, wow, it's so clean in here. It smells so good. The bathroom quickly emptied. The people in there thought I was crazy. And I just marveled at the things, little things that we take for granted. Yeah. So that that was really dramatic. And very few of my readers actually chose to go to a remote place to volunteer <laughs> after reading yeah. my book. Yeah, I would imagine, too, that your sobriety, you know, being sober, I don't know how fresh off that you were, but right. th there's a lot of things that are blurred when you're not sober. And so really having that and experiencing mm -hmm. something was probably 10 times more intense. Yes. Uh, I mean, I feel like I started living in color and seeing colors and appreciating natural grandeur in a way I hadn't before. 
So I do talk a fair amount about travel in the book, but tra- transformative travel does not have to be dramatic. I am transformed by sometimes walking to the next neighborhood or the next town that we just being outside exposes you to nature's miracles, to more people who you wouldn't meet. I discovered gardens and walking labyrinths in places I had passed hundreds of times in my car, but I was so rushed before in my life that now I really take time to savor things. I uh, practice walking meditations every day. I practice centering breathing every day. So, and I guess none of this you did before. No, I didn't. What did you do along with drinking? Did you watch TV? Did you, were you just a workaholic? And I, I was uh, more of a human doing than a human being. Like uh, I was a chronic so yeah. list maker. I was, I mean, it's not good that you were that, but character. it's a good, good, like what a great quote. Thank yeah. you. I, yeah. I spent so much time doing rather than being and enjoying the moments. I recently have been become fond of this notion of glimmers Glimmers being small moments of joy throughout our existence that maybe many of us just notice and keep going or don't notice at all. Whereas if we savor something for more than two minutes, it really impacts our well-being. So that was a fundamental change in my life as well. So you also asked me about things I did that scared me while going to Nepal did scare me on some levels. I'm a pretty intrepid traveler, so it didn't really scare me. What uh, things that scared me included, um, I went to an open mic night and (laughs) belted out a song on stage and I'm a terrible singer, but I wanted to stretch my comfort zone. And I truly believe as you do, that courage is not the absence of fear, but courage is feeling the fear and going through it anyway. And what song did you sing? Oh my God. What song did I sing? Uh, it's, I don't even know if I know the words, Ingrid Michelson. I Uh, forgot the title, but it was sort of a ballad Z song that really meant something to me. And, uh, I left the stage to polite applause, one applause. It was terrible. And (laughs) I'm never going to do that again. But what it did is it made me more brave to take the stage for my speaking engagements and for Mm. other other venues. So I'm not scared to speak on stage anymore. And in fact, I spoke at the National March to End Rape Culture in in DC, and I wasn't intimidated at all. And after I spoke, I was surrounded by young women who said, I can't believe you said that out loud. Um, Sexual assault and sexual abuse are part of my story. And I kept that I kept that under wraps for decades and it kept me sick. Secrets can keep us sick. Yes. So now I share about that in the hope of helping others not feel so alone and feel empowered to seek help. So I like to talk about not dealing with one's traumas as akin to holding a beach ball underwater. It pops up in unexpected mm. ways and yeah. you can be triggered and lash out to some at someone because you haven't processed your trauma. And I was doing that. So I don't do that anymore. I don't do you mean have... that after you recovered, you were you weren't being open about it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. actually went to 
retreat and to a rehab for people who had been sexually abused as children. And I needed to do that because I was full of shame over what had happened to me. And now I realize I was a child. It's not my fault, but I didn't tell anyone. And so I felt complicit in what had happened. So I don't feel that way anymore, but I needed to pay attention to it because it doesn't just go away. I mean, it, it, I did put a bandaid on it, but it was still there and it was still permeating my sense of self and my relationships. So I had to do something about it. Do you think that was part of your drinking? Oh, well? yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. I I'm mean, most people in AA, most people admit somewhere along the way, whether it's to their sponsor or to the meeting at large, that they too were sexually assaulted. It, it's so common. One in four American women reported st- statistics say will have will have experienced sexual assault in their lifetime and one in six men. And most people don't think about that but it happens. Yeah. Yeah. I had an amazing guest and it's probably been about a year now. And her story was so shocking. She was uh, raped by repeatedly over years by her father. Mm. And she finally, um, I think a a schoolmate uh, and the mother got suspicious. And so I think she was probably like 14 when it, and they basically took her away. And then they ended up putting her back into the home because the dad went to rehab Mm. and came back out after three months and didn't change. And then she had to go back into the home and then it happened again. And it's Mm. just, of course, this was back. I think the court system is much better now. This was back in the late seventies, like early eighties, I think, but you know, it's just heartbreaking of, you know, what, what some and many women go through. Yeah. And I would like to, tell your listeners that they are not alone. The Me Too movement empowered a lot of people to come forward. But one of the most impactful things I did actually just two years ago is I went to saprea.org, which has S-A-P-R-E-A, which has a lot of information and resources. And they host a free retreat for adults who were sexually abused as children, women. So I would uh, really encourage your listeners to look into that. It is so impactful. And even though I have done a lot of processing and healing, it gave me additional tools to not only help myself, but to help others. In AA, I sponsor a lot of women and it's part of their stories more often than not. And so it helps me help them too. Mm. Yeah, my best friend from college, we were roommates in college And uh, she became what I would call a raving alcoholic. And she was a mean alcoholic, too. She had a couple glasses of wine, like this, this evil side of her. You know, some people are happy drunks, some people are mean drunks, and she was a mean drunk. And it got to a head where um, we both ended up, you know, we knew there were problems in college, but it was like college, you know, you're all drinking, having fun. Mm -hmm. And then we, we left, we got married, we had kids. And when she had small children, she was drinking excessively and it finally Mm -hmm. ended her marriage. She let her marriage, she got her kids. I testified against her in court. Oh God. It was a horrible, horrible situation, but I finally had to say, you want to support your friends? 
Yes. And you want to be there for them. But it got to the point where she was just so mean and nasty and she couldn't help herself. We mm-hmm. did an intervention. She, she went to rehab, didn't stick. So finally, we I just one day I wrote her a long email and I said, I can't be your friend anymore. I can't. You're just when you come out of your haze, I think that's mm-hmm. the last thing I said is when you come out of your haze, I'm here for you. Mm. So 11 years went by and we, I, I actually ran into her brothers a couple of times and it was like, then I ran into her father who at a doctor's appointment and it was just like these three things and I'm like, something's telling me to, that I need to reach out because I heard mm-hmm. through the grapevine that she'd gotten sober. Mm-hmm. And so I reached out to her and that was back in 2006. And she, you know, she's been amazing. She's been an amazing mm-hmm. example to me. And she's been an amazing example to her children who, you know, th- to see their mother tackle that. Yeah. So yeah, one of my questions having that being close, very close to home for me, that is, I th- would think to be one of the hardest things, you know, it's such a habit and, and, and it's just so easy to stay stuck in that cycle. And so what was it for you? Because a lot of times it's it's something that happens. It's just like one thing. And it's like, I don't want to live like this anymore. Because she went to rehab like three times. Yes. And so it wasn't, it wasn't like rehab was working for her. Right. Uh, I think for me, I probably did it for my children first. And my son now has six years sober. And I know, knew that he was watching me. And so I felt that I had to set an example for him and model what it could look like. So until I could practice enough self-love and self-care, I did it for my children. Mm. And I was codependent on my children. Like if they weren't happy, I wasn't happy. And I recognize that now. And I do go to Al-Anon meetings because Al-Anon taught me how to have proper boundaries and appropriate relationships, really. Al-Anon is started as a fellowship for people who are in relationship with drug addicts and alcoholics, but it has expanded to people who are in dysfunctional relationships. And almost everyone is in at least one dysfunctional relationship. So it's so helpful. I'd encourage your listeners to go to Al-Anon, their national website and find a meeting. You can even just listen to one online and see if it resonates with you, though it is recommended that you try several before you decide whether it's for you or not, because they do differ. We're all human. So each meeting has a different personality based on who attends. Yeah. That's so good to know. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I re- I really recommend you check it out. Yeah. So what was your process? Did you just go to rehab because you just made the decision that I need to change this? Or did you no. stop on your own? Or how did, how did you do no, that? Oh, I fought it kicking and screaming. Absolutely fought it. My Husband made me go to AA and I sat outside the local AA club and I was so full of shame that I just sat there for days watching other people go in. And then I started seeing people I knew go in, including people from my church. And so I decided to go in and I ran into Uh, someone I've known since I was six years old. And he introduced me to my sponsor and my the women who became my sober sisters, who loved me until I could love myself. And I was on what we call the pink cloud, where you unburden yourself, you feel so great about everything. 
And then I relapsed and relapse is a common happening. And for me, the relapse was because I did not believe I deserved all this love and all this healing. And so I, I went out again and went to another rehab and because you are shameful (laughs) of your relapse. Yeah. 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 And I, I knew that there were so many layers to this particular onion and I was scared to peel back what was underneath. Yes. So it took a while. And one of that identity was probably better to adopt Mm -hmm. than your Mm -hmm. authentic identity, which had to reveal all that. Yes. True. I felt like if, if everyone knew really what was underneath this and what I came from. No one would want to be near me. I had so much shame and shame is so corrosive. So I needed to do the steps of AA over and over again. I needed to um, go to therapy and I needed to really reflect on who I was and who I wanted to be. And I even had suicidal ideation thinking that my kids would be better off without me. And once in an AA meeting where I was really falling apart, a homeless woman came up to me and said, if you think your children are messed up now, they will be more messed up if their mother commits suicide or dies by suicide. And that really struck me like, oh, my gosh, you're right. Was that random? Like, should she just like read your mind, you think? No, no, no. I I talked about it in the meeting and she grabbed me after the meeting and said this to me and saved my life, really. Because how true is that? Yeah. We often are so sick, those of us who have suicidal ideation, that we don't play the tape through and think about what that will do to people who care about us. So I'll never do that again. Well, that's good. And think of what your life has become. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how beautiful is that? Yes. Finding Agreed. yourself. And it's interesting too. Like I'm sure your husband went through a lot dealing with that, but it's interesting that you chose to part after you did. Was that after you got sober? Or yes, it was. Dead? I didn't want a divorce. Yeah. I came from a broken home at a time when it wasn't that common and I was miserable. I was really sad that he wanted to end the marriage. I understood it, but I didn't want to end our marriage. And I pled with him, please don't do this. Please don't do this. But he had made up his mind and I still love him. I love him more like a brother than a spouse. He remarried, which also really hurt me. And the day of his second marriage, I gathered my best friends in the world and invited them to a marriage to myself. Oh, that's a great idea. I have written about it. You can look at my blog. I've written about this and for other publications as well. But I said vows to myself that no one is responsible for my happiness, but me. Oh, everybody needs to do that before they get married. (laughs) Yeah. What a great idea. Yeah. And I... It was healing for me. I knew I was going to be sad on his wedding date. My kids were going. I don't even like to think about it. But I know, I know that I am responsible for my life and my happiness. And if I don't like my life, 
It's up to me to do something to change it because not doing anything is a choice too. It is settling for status quo. I don't do that anymore. So I know what it takes to make me happy. I know what it what brings me joy. When I was in my deepest depressions, I couldn't think of anything that brought me joy. So my therapist would have me write down things like chocolate ice cream, sunsets, like little things until I could find things that I could do, like helping another person, alleviating the burden from someone else brings me joy. It's a different kind of joy. Joy for me in middle age is is more akin to contentment, serenity. It's not like the the wildness, the parties, the socializing of my 20s and 30s and even 40s that I thought brought me joy, but that was so fleeting. Joy for me now is so much more longer lasting. Mm, yeah, deeper joy. Mm-hmm. I think of those when you say the parties and the ex- that that kind of excitement. To me, that's just like it's like kind of adrenaline rush. Yeah, it's just a temporary yeah. thing, and you have to recognize it for that because because yeah. because a lot of times people who aren't happy inside they need those things and they keep trying to fill and and then when they don't have them they're not happy and I would yes. rather be happy when I didn't have those things. Yeah, so there's something yeah. I, I've read a lot about called the hedonistic effect, and it has to do with something I changed in my life, which is things items don't bring us lasting happiness. They're temporary. It's a hedonistic, wow, look what I have type of feeling. But it's experiences and relationships that bring us more, a deeper sense of contentment. Mm -hmm. And I think that the pandemic underscored that for many of us, that we could do without going to the store for things. But most of us were really, really set back by not being able to spend time with the people we love. So I'm hoping that people yeah. don't forget that and that people adopt what, well, I shouldn't prescribe this, but it helps me. So I will, that I practice my own, my own brand of minimalism, which is for every one thing I bring into my home, I get rid of, donate, sell, dispose of two things so that my kids are not saddled with personal belongings, a lot of personal belongings of mine when I die, which is what happened to me when my father died. And when my stepfather died, there was just so much stuff. Nobody needs that much stuff. And if anyone in my family, for instance, wants to give me a present to commemorate something, I always ask that it be an experience, like let's go to dinner instead, or let's go on a trip or I mean, my son, who you know is a social media star. Yeah, well, the listeners don't know this. She she has a son who has how many million? <laughs> well, um, on TikTok, eleven million. On wow, Instagram, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's five million on his yeah. two accounts. But follow him at Chris on TikTok <laughs> and at Chris Olson on Instagram. Yeah. He um, started uh, making TikToks during the pandemic and is now a millionaire based on his TikToks alone and has won many awards and has been featured in the media in many things. He even got to do a red carpet show at the Cannes Film Festival, the Oscars he covered for TikTok. Anyway, he was People Magazine's sexiest TikToker alive. Oh, how funny. He's crazy successful and I'm so happy for him. And this is this child who went to rehab and had a significant drug and alcohol problem. But, well, he's probably older and wiser than his yeah, years. Absolutely. He because is. of that. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Going through recovery. Yeah. Right. But what I was going to say is I just turned 60 last month and 
my son for my 60th birthday bought me a business class ticket to Bora Bora. Mm. I mean, wow, the circle has closed. Can you believe it? A 25 year old bought his mom a ticket to Bora Bora. That's really amazing to me. Not something I would have foreseen. Yeah. And was that something you wanted to do or was it a complete surprise or no, 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 no. Um, it was something I wanted to do for my 60th birthday for a long time. I have a relative who owns an overwater bungalow there. And mm. so I rented it and invited my two best friends from law school to come with me. Fun. Yeah. Oh, how fun. So that leads me to what you just had this amazing trip to Bora Bora. What's next? What are you most excited about and looking forward to? In your well, in the next um, decade, right, right. Travel is huge for me. It really brings me so much joy and learning and perspective expansion. So, I have been to sixty countries, which was a goal of mine for sixty, and I'm hoping oh, to be at sixty-five. That's a book. That's a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sixty-five for my sixty-fifth birthday. But I am writing a book on the unintended consequences of DNA testing. Because I found out at about mm, six, seven years ago that the father who raised me is not my biological father, Wow! that I am the product of a one night stand. And this is not a- You're you're Oprah. (laughs) This is not an uncommon experience. So I'm writing a book about that, how to deal with it, how to find help, um, the legal ramifications of DNA testing. So I'm writing a book about that. Yeah, and, you could have uh, um, somebody, somebody could find you and you could have a, what I'm right, a blood relative is what, what the word I was looking for, a blood relative who committed some murder, which is, it's kind of true. helpful for investigations, but yeah, there's all kinds true. of stuff with DNA. Lots testing. of stuff happen. Yeah. So those are things I will do. I have dreams of having a talk show. I do have a podcast called Becoming Your Best Version, but I'd like to have a, a network talk show. And I would like to have a comedy series called Julipina, a Jewish Philip. There are no Jewish Filipinos. And I just <laughs> found out that my biological father is Ashkenazi Jew. I'm 50% Ashkenazi Jew, 50% Southeast Asian. And I, I think, I mean, it is hilarious, the hilarious things that happen in my life. So I'd like to pitch that to Netflix or Amazon or something like that. Yeah, that is that is very interesting. I do not want to get my DNA tested. I, I know I know I'm a mutt from you know that's like several European genes and, and and yeah I just I don't know there's I just don't there's something about somebody else having that level of data it just makes me uncomfortable. Well, I've done a lot of research about it, and there are a lot of privacy concerns that people don't realize. So you're wise to reflect hard on it before you do it or not do it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Some things are better going to your grave with. You'll find out after after you're gone, right? Perhaps. Yes. So yeah, let me let me see. I have a what advice would you give your younger self? I would give my younger self the advice that one should surround themselves with people who encourage you, who lift you up, who set uh, aspirational goals for you via their model, because the negativity bias is alive in all of us. And the people you spend the most time with 
are the people who will influence you the most. So although I'm still close, close friends with people from childhood, I would have earlier in my life sought mentors, sought the company of people whose lives I wanted to emulate. Yeah, that is so, so that's such a great point. I was listening to a podcast recently and Lewis Howes was the guest and I I haven't heard, I mean, I see him on social media, but I don't pay much attention to his stuff. And I know he's all about mindset, but it's so interesting, his backstory about how his and his big mentor was his dad. Mm. And his dad died when he was very young. He was, well, not really young, but old enough to have mentored him. Mm-hmm. But he was still too young. He was like 21, I think. Mm-hmm. And he was going into football and his dad was guiding him. And um, he said that his dad dying, he's like, I need to find people like my dad. That's what I need to do. And mm. the, the mentors really made him who he is. So that's such good insight. That's I appreciate beautiful. that. I think a lot of people don't realize how to get out of their toxic relationships, you know, their family. Yeah. How do you separate from that? People well, you, can, be mad. you need to, one needs to learn appropriate boundaries, which were lacking in my life before 50 and before all the work that I did. Boundary setting should be taught in schools, I believe, because it's not in always intuitive. You know, we think we should need this loyalty to our family, family first. But if they're, if they are energy vampires, if they are very negative people, it's reasonable and a form of self-care to limit your exposure to that, to something that harms you. Yes. Yeah. And what tip would you give? What what comes to mind for me is like, find somebody that energetically you like, Mm -hmm. you want to be a match to Yeah, like somebody that who's positive and just try to be around them as much as as anything else that you would. Yeah. Right. Well, something that I learned in AA, I think is really helpful and applicable to mentorships as well. Mentorship is free. I mean, if you find someone who inspires you, what would you lose by asking that person? If you don't ask, you're never going to find out. Yes. By the same token, people are complex. So I recommend that you ask someone to have coffee with you or to go on a walk with you to really get to know that person better because most people show their highlight reels, not their uh, what's really happening in their lives behind the, the scenes, yeah. behind the yeah. scenes. Right. So get to know them first before formally asking for a mentorship so that you know if there's a good fit and then give yourself permission to end a mentorship if it's not working for you anymore and set appropriate boundaries and respect the boundaries of your mentor. Relationships can be hard. They can be um, thorny, but we all as adults learn appropriate boundaries. We learn what is self-care for us. We learn what's feeding us and what's no longer feeding us. So uh, I guess I would say uh, also consider asking someone to be your temporary mentor. So nobody's locked into it. So you can both see if there's a fit and if it would be a fruitful endeavor. So I guess those are some safeguards to ensure that you enter into something that will help you. Yeah. Yeah. And what would you suggest if somebody wanted to learn about, oh, you know, setting boundaries? I've heard that before, but how do I really do that? Have you read a book or? Oh, yeah. I think you should read my book, 50 After 50, Reframing the Next Chapter of Your Life. Okay. And uh, there is a, a lot in there about boundary setting. 
And I would recommend that you go to an Al-Anon meeting, whether yes. it's in person or online, because that's all about setting boundaries. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. And, and they probably have documentation. Oh, absolutely. They hand out and stuff. They have, yeah. There are many books about the 12 steps, and there's a lot of overlap between the various 12-step programs. And there's a lot of common literature now about boundaries. Uh, so you can even, even Google it and read on your own about various things. Yeah. But I've always uh, been really good about setting boundaries. Like I don't good. know, from a very young age. No, I said no. I, I'm, I'm not. A, oh, I think I, I, there's an aspect of, you know, you, you want to people to like you, mm -hmm. but yet I don't know. I don't say yes. I'll, Unless well, I never said no were, before yeah. I turned 50. I can't even think of a single time I said no, because I was a people pleaser. I had to learn how to remedy that situation. And I've learned through my work in self-care that saying no is a form of self-care. Yeah. And that now I'm able to say, oh, no, I have another commitment. I can't just say no, but I can say I have another commitment. And I'm under no obligation to tell anyone what that commitment is, because that commitment could be as simple as replenishing my energy. Yes, I love that. That's great. That's a great note to end on. Yes. All right. Thank you. No, I have another commitment. I need to replenish my energy. I yeah. love that. Mm -hmm. There's been so many great nuggets in this conversation. So thank you so much, Maria, for being here. I did not know where that we'd go into so much about your recovery. I didn't even, it, it, there was just like little one word about recovery mentor and I didn't know what that meant. And so mm. I appreciate you sharing your story. It's my pleasure. And it is my hope continuously to help other people. Hmm. All right. Well, best of luck to you and many adventures ahead. I'm going to Sedona next weekend. I'm going to oh. do my first, I'm hosting my first retreat. So very excited about that. Yeah. And I just went to Ireland and Scotland. So I am like you. I don't, I, I never turned down a great adventure. So excellent. Yeah. Keeps us young. Keeps yes. us young. That's what we need to do. I, I recommend that to everyone because there's a lot out there in the world for us to explore. Yes. And right. we, you know, we don't, we shouldn't be staying in, in the place that we're familiar with. We need to get, have it be unfamiliar and expose us. Yeah, that's great yeah. stuff. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning into the Living Your Spark second half podcast. If you'd like to watch my guest interviews, you can find the video version of this podcast on my Not Your Average Grandma YouTube channel. Also, you can check out what I have going on at the moment by going to my website at notyouraveragegrandma.com or find me on Instagram or Facebook at notyouraveragegrandma. If you like this episode, please mention it to a friend and don't forget to leave a review so I know the topics you like best and can bring you more of that content in upcoming episodes. Last but not least, remember to always listen to that inner voice that will never steer you wrong and make living from the most sparked place possible your biggest priority. When we do that, we make the world a better place.